This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host, Jane Brown. Great to have you along here with me today. Libby is taking a day off and she's back tomorrow. And now, the Recovering Politicians Panel. We'll start the conversation this week talking about the big Rogers outage and how poorly it was handled, not only by the communications team at Rogers, but also by the Trudeau Liberals. We'll see if our recovering politicians agree or disagree with that statement. Charles Souza is a former Liberal Ontario finance minister. Lisa Wright is a former federal conservative deputy leader and filling in today for former Ontario NDP leader Howard Hampton, former Toronto City Councillor Glenn DeBearmaker. Hello to you all. Good afternoon. Well, we will start first with the lack of communication for the first several hours of the outage on Friday and the day in general. Charles, if you could begin. Yeah, I'm fully relying on Rogers uh, for all the activity I have at home, and I was cut off completely. Um, I don't have the same concerns as many would have if they were fully reliant. I ended up going to my brother's who has Bell Mobility and Bell Usage, so we were able to coordinate and do Zoom meetings. But it's very disturbing. And it's disturbing on a number of fronts in that it's becoming a vital service. And for businesses, it's essential for healthcare and others. Um, we have to take a different look at the way we view our reliance on, on telecommunications because it's so dependent now. It's almost like electricity, uh, any vital service Mm -hmm. that we would require for defense, for that matter. There's a lot of security risk that we have to also be aware of when it comes to telecommunications. And even when you think, Charles, I mean, the last line of defense uh, was the television news or the radio news. And in a lot of cases, people are listening to the radio on Alexa. They'd have to go out to their cars and listen. I mean, we are tethered to communicate or to technology beyond belief, really. You know, it's a wake-up call, and it's it's probably a good thing this happened, as, as, as tough as it was for many businesses, in that we now have a bit of a shock that's con- come to the system, that we are vulnerable. It happened for a day. Some are still suffering. There's been a few days for a few others, but it means that we have to now take measures to protect ourselves going forward. Let's get initial thoughts from Lisa Wright on the big outage on Friday and how it was handled. So I was at Calgary Stampede, and I'm not a Bell. Sorry, I'm not a Rogers. I just told you who I am. With. I'm a Bell. <laughs> okay. So I ended up, I ended up uh, having service, but my colleagues who were there did not, which made it extremely difficult uh, for us to make sure that we were coordinating clients and getting to places on time. But that's an annoyance. Charles is exactly correct. This is about more than annoyance. This is about things that are extremely important to the well-functioning of our society. And I would say having 911 availability would be one of them. The other is actually being able to transact transact um, payments. And a lot of places, small businesses, lost the ability to do that. Not a lot of people have cash. Some ATMs weren't, weren't working. And that gives people a little bit of a panic. So silver lining to this is that there's a greater understanding now of the critical pieces of our lives that we need to make sure can function. The hard part, though, Jane, is going to be how are these telcos going to parse that out? Are they going to have separate systems depending upon whether or not it's a, it's a nice to have uh, so you can watch Netflix or if it's a we need to have it? For the functioning of our society. So lots of work to happen in this area, for sure. And we'll talk about here in just a moment how the industry minister handled uh, the situation yesterday, which I thought was quite good. But on that first day, Glenn, I mean, it was it was at least four or five hours before Rogers even released a statement. And certainly we weren't hearing anything from the federal government either. Uh, yes. And my reaction was a big oops. You mean the entire country can be shut down because some machine somewhere got something put into it or a little system fix uh, crashed the entire nationwide infrastructure? I mean, it's, it's pretty astounding, very concerning. 
I am glad that it, it, it happened. I'm not glad that it happened. Actually, I am. I'm glad that it happened now when, when something even worse didn't happen. Mm-hmm. I can only hope that I, I just assumed, silly me, that, that these companies would have a backup system. I, I have a car in my driveway. It has a spare tire. <laughs> I just assumed that these you know, brilliant scientists that are running these companies would have a backup system. Uh, and maybe they do, but it obviously didn't work. So I can only hope that going forward, these companies, and, and you said you'll talk about the federal response in a second, which we need to, um, but these companies will have to sort of say, okay, oops, if one of us breaks down, maybe they should share the system. What, what if all three went down at once? Like, I don't know. I'm a guy who has a cell phone. They're, they get they get our money to take care of us, and they didn't do it on in this case. Certainly, you are welcome to call in and join our Recovering Politicians panel with your thoughts uh, four days later on the Rogers outage and how it's been handled in the early going and as recently as yesterday. Numbers to call are 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-744-740. Now, what about the reasoning? Uh, the Rogers CEO, Tony Staffieri, attributed the outage to a network system failure after a maintenance update. That language there, Charles, does that help us? Do we feel empathetic? Do we feel concerned that uh, something, that the whole system could go down because of a maintenance update? Yeah, it makes me even more worried, more concerned. I mean, I had a technician come in, or a technician, we have a a battery-operated thermostat in our home. The whole system shuts down when that battery goes out. That's, that's, crazy. We should have it actually hardwired. We should have alternate uh, sources by which to serve the needs of, in this case, telecommunications sector. It worries me. It worries me that we're lagging behind other parts of the world who seem to have advanced systems at much lower cost than we have here in Canada. And, um, yeah, I don't, I, I, I don't know what the reasons were, and I'm sure they're... Uh, my biggest worry was if we were attacked, mm-hmm. if there was an actual yes. cyber attack. That's what really concerned me. And if, if we're vulnerable to maintenance crew, wow, imagine what anybody else can do. Right. Lisa, what about uh, that excuse, the reasoning for the outage? I don't think that actually gives you much more information. I mean, was the, what, let's put it together what Charles just said. Uh, in during maintenance, did somebody drop security in the system? Was this? an actor from the outside. I mean, the U.S., not more than four days ago, warned countries uh, about China and Russia when it comes to cyber, and then our whole system goes down. That's not a conspiracy theory. Those two data points are important to look at. And I found it curious that the the Minister of Industry, um, Francois-Philippe Champagne, had the meeting with the CEOs. That's fine. That almost begs the question of, was it only the fault of of Rogers. Like, was there something to do with mm-hmm. national security here? And does the government have a role to play? So I'd be very interested in that. And I would definitely be scrubbing um, information. And maybe the parliamentary committee will get to the bottom of it. And by the way, Charles, as for the, the battery and the thermostat, yeah, I had to have a call uh, to the furnace guys to come in to tell me that. That was very embarrassing. It was silly. It's silly yeah. that we're relying the same thing on the happen. battery. The whole system shuts down. Well, right. A, a lot of what we use in our homes now is controlled through the, the Internet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Glenn, what about that? Uh, Lisa's observation that maybe this is just a public statement and it's really just a line to cover up something much larger behind the scenes. Um. I guess I, I'm not that far into a conspiracy theory. Do, do I believe uh, stupid things happen? Yes, I do. So when, when they talk about maintenance updates, well, I, you know, I'm a guy with a cell phone. Was there a guy with a mop and a pail, uh, you know, mopping the floor somewhere at Rogers and uh, spilled some water onto a computer? I have no idea. It, this mistake shouldn't have happened. It did. And you know, they have to fix it because it's their multi-billion dollar business. And I think there it is important for the federal government, now that this has happened, to say, wait a minute, what if this happens to Bill? What if it happens to all three of you? How will people go shopping? How will hospitals operate? How will people call 911 if one or two or all of your systems go down? So I think they have to build in some backup systems. They have to uh, build in some redundancy. Again, I don't know much about computers, but 
they do, and they should fix it, both them, because it's their companies, and the federal government, because we elect the federal government to protect us. You're listening to Zoomer Radio's Fight Back, Jane, for Libby, along with our Recovering Politicians panel. That's Glenn DeBearmaker, former Toronto City Councillor. Lisa Raid is with us, former Federal Conservative Deputy Leader, and Charles Souza, former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister. We'll go to the phones, and again, the numbers, 416-360-0740, or toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. Four days later, we are all still talking about the big outage. Mary in Toronto, what would you like to add? Oh, I am concerned that I haven't heard any issue or observation of the weekend concert that was supposed to be listed as starting at 6.30 p.m. And when you call the Rogers Centre, I don't know what the relationship was with Rogers Centre, but they had a recording that said they couldn't help with anything due to technical difficulties. And it was just before 4 o'clock there was still no acknowledgement whether the concert for forty or 50,000 people was going to take place or not take place. And I called the Metro Police non-emergency line to ask if they had any information relayed to them, and they said they didn't have anything. So within two hours before the concert, there was still, as far as I can see, I gave up after that, no comment of whether they, the 50,000 people should come down, maybe where there is no... Um, telephones or radio phones for security at the stadium. Um, probably couldn't many people purchase anything from the canteen if they didn't have cash. Maybe not even able to get parking if they didn't have a way to do that, um, you know, through the internet or right. however they're, they're doing that. I, no comment, and I couldn't find it. I gave up at 4 o'clock, gave up. And you had but tickets for... Y- they were turned away at the door. You had tickets. I know people that had tickets. I and see. They were very concerned about students having tickets. Right. Not knowing. Well, that's that's trying. that's the whole feeling that everybody was going through on Friday. That the communications for all aspects and the repercussions of this thing uh, was handled so poorly. Yes, I can't believe they didn't at least make a statement on their recording to please call in every hour that they're still trying to do the concert, but they're uncertain. Because I think most people that went down thought they would lose their money if they didn't go down. If they didn't show up, yeah. the concert would be on and they'd miss it. All right, Mary, thank you for calling. Let's go to Roger in Caledon. Roger, your thoughts? Hi, yeah. um, You know, um, as a former IBM field rep, uh, the answer to this, uh, the, 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 the real answer to the, uh, the system going down for Rogers is honestly, it's going to happen again and again. It will happen. The real answer is to have a backup. I have a Rogers and another cell phone company that, it, that I carry. And it, I learned that from IBM. And at IBM as a field rep, you're going out to clients. They don't want excuses. Okay. You're, IBM's charging them hundreds of dollars an hour. And they don't want to hear an excuse that Roger's cell service is down, so I can't do your work for you. It's unacceptable. Mm-hmm. As as you can hear from everybody in, in the country saying, this is completely unacceptable. Well, with IBM, they don't they don't put up with that. They they make sure if you're a field rep, you have two phones, and you don't run into situations like that because right. it really is unacceptable. Right. right? No, thank that, you for that. That is the answer. Thank you, Roger. In Caledon, uh, that uh, helps us transition to the next part of this conversation. The industry minister yesterday, Francois-Philippe Champagne, uh, met virtually with the heads of the big telecoms. He's given them 60 days to come up with a plan to make sure everyone is covered in the event of another emergency outage. So, in other words, uh, they can piggyback on each other should one of them go out. Uh, do you think, I mean, he even said himself, the industry minister, Charles, that this is is a first step. Yeah, it is just a first step, and obviously they have to do something to cooperate as emergencies of this sort take place. They already piggyback on their systems, uh, especially in the rural community, so these things do occur. Um, it kind of reminds me of the bank merger discussions. I mean, what's going to come up to light now is Roger's desire to buy another telecom company and be even larger. And and I, and I and when I was in the banking sector, we also were looking at merging and trying to become more competitive worldwide, but at the expense, it seems, of our own uh, members, Canadians. And right now, the lack of competition is problematic mm-hmm. in this case. Had it not been for Bell and a few of the other providers, we would have been at risk. 
And so it's important for us to, uh, and for the, the federal government now, to reconsider what's going to happen in respect to, to, to merging of telecommunications in the country. They'll have to find some ways to improve service and delivery. Um, some people are asking for more government controls and ownership, for that matter. I'm not sure that's the answer, but we certainly do need to do um, more transparency, more awareness, and find a way to be more competitive. Lisa, what do you think of the way the industry minister handled yesterday's events with the meeting and, and speaking with the media afterwards? I think it was very, very, very clever. Um, I would hope that if I were put in the same situation, I would do the same thing. It gave confidence to the fact that the government understood what the impact was going to be, and it showed that he's not afraid to roll up his sleeves and get involved. And quite frankly, the Liberal government can't take another black eye on managing something as crucial as telecom because we've already seen a disaster in passports. We're witnessing a disaster in airports. And I think the minister just got out ahead of it. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, he said we'll be observing very closely. I don't know what tools he has. I mean, honestly, I don't know what he can do. I don't know what the government can do. Uh, but certainly the industry came to the table with um, – the desire to make sure that they are going to be working collaboratively. And I respected that. So all in all, I give it, I give it a thumbs up. I think it was the right political play. I think it was the right response from the telcos. Now, let's see what ends up happening and, and whether or not uh, we're going to be really protected in the next time. Glenn, I think Lisa's bang on there with her analysis. What are your thoughts? Um, I'm with you, Jane. I thought, I thought Lisa's correct. I mean, the minister should have said, you have a problem fix this. And it's either an easy way and you do it amongst yourselves, you know, the way that you want, or we can legislate this. And the Canadian government does have a lot of power. So, and I'm sure those companies don't want the federal government and the federal bureaucrats telling them how to run their businesses. That's probably not what any of us want. So I think the minister calling them together saying, hi, remember me? I'm your friend, the government. And if you don't fix up this mess the easy way by yourself, I'm going to come in and maybe we don't know what we're doing that much, but we're going to fix it one way or the other. So I think it was, a. am going to say, I bet you the, the presidents of those companies have a lot of incentive today to get their act together and to come up with their own solution. And I think that's probably best. Let those private sector companies figure out how to fix the problem. And then the government doesn't need to be involved. And that's good for everybody. And we have this 60-day deadline that's been floated by Champagne to the heads of the telecoms. Uh, Charles, what we don't know is what if they don't have a plan in 60 days? Yeah, I, they, they actually meet regularly, as far mm-hmm. as I understand, because they have a very active association and uh, lobbying effort. Mm-hmm. They've been going after government. The government's been trying to uh, provide greater controls and measures to lower costs to consumers uh, in telecommunications. So that's been ongoing for a number of years. So there is lines of communication that's been had. I'm with Lisa on this one. I, I think uh, Champagne has actually shown some great leadership here. But the uh, actual ability to deliver on an agreement within 60 days, is, it, mm. they can say all they want. It's, mm-hmm. It's the technicality, the technical support there to enable it to be so. And can we avoid this from happening again? That will be up to the telecos to, to coordinate themselves. And... There's a lot of money here. It's a huge industry. There's a lot of fortunes being made in telecommunications. And um, that is one thing that the government's going to have to to control because, uh, you know, that will come into play. I want to get final thoughts on this topic as well from Lisa and Glenn. An investigation by the CRTC is also promised uh, as mm-hmm. to what exactly happened on Friday. Um, but in terms of what questions you're left with, Lisa, what still needs to be addressed that we didn't hear about yesterday? I think what I pointed out at the top was whether or not there was any foreign actor involved in this. That would be the question I have. And CRTC is not going to get to the bottom of it and nor will a, a parliamentary committee, because that's just something that won't get reported. But I do believe that we have to be vigilant when it comes to those systems like 911 and Interact. Glenn? Uh, I, I think the government and the companies have to, if you will, publish or tell us, members of the public who pay for their service, what is your backup system? 
for something like this and other scenarios that could happen. What if two of the companies had gone out or three of the companies? Then maybe we would all be out communication uh, without communications for an entire day. That would be uh, a crisis situation. So I think they have an obligation to tell us what is their backup plan so this never happens again. I'm with the Recovering Politicians panel. Jane for Libby here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. Glenn DeBearmaker, Lisa Raid, and Charles Souza. I'd like to get quickly your impressions of the Premier's meeting in Victoria before we touch on Patrick Brown. I'm hoping we can uh, get that all in before the bottom of the hour. Uh, Charles, uh, the, the Premiers have resolved to ask for a bigger piece of the pie in terms of federal funding for health care because health care is struggling across the country. As as a result of the pandemic, um, does that have any legs? Is that likely to happen? Uh, it happens every year. <laughs> every <laughs> yeah. time there's a budget discussion, yeah. there's a huge discussion around health transfers. It's uh, one of the largest items in, in any provincial budget. Uh, the, pro- the federal government coming forward with the universal dental care and a few other things in respect to their uh, agreements with the NDP is also going to put a burden on the costs that we have. But bottom line, there's staff shortages. There's a lack of of, uh, of personnel to, to provide service. And I think there's going to be a need to change the way we deliver. We have a lot of ALC and, and home care needs that are still stuck in hospitals that shouldn't be there. There's a lot of change that needs to be had. And, of course, rural communities are suffering you know, they've always been rural. There's always been a lack of population, but that's now increasing. So the demands are greater. Um, it's going to have to mean a different way of servicing health care. And back in the day when it first came to be, universal health care was about providing operations and emergencies. Now it offers much more than that, and that's very costly. So we have to find a way to make it sustainable. Right, because there's only one taxpayer dollar, as Libby always says, right? That's true. Uh, Lisa, your thoughts on the Premier's meeting and, and what they're requesting? Yeah, I think uh, the government, so the federal government actually has the easiest position in all of this, and that is the fact that they hold a checkbook. And the ask for money is, you know, it's going to happen every year, as Charles points out. Fine. The real change has to come from within. And when I say from within, I mean every floor of every hospital, every administration, everybody has to take a look at how they can deliver better. And that includes the province. The top-down approach is not working. Giving the money and then fighting over whether or not it has strings to go into certain areas and hiring people to make sure it's going into certain areas, that's not working. So if we're going to be ready for the next pandemic, if we're going to, and, and I would submit the next thing to deal with is the gray tsunami of dementia. If you want to be ready for that, then change has to start from within and it has to start uh, with everybody. Mm-hmm. Um and just fighting over how many dollars or what percentage points, bit of a smokescreen for me. Um, show me that you're making the change on the, on the ground. Glenn? Well, as a recovering politician, I, I looked at the Premier's statements and found them very unhelpful. To say that all the Premiers across Canada could agree that somebody else should pay the bill. <laughs> wow, how shocking. I mean, I, I just find it irresponsible. If those Premiers had actually said the federal government should pay more, and here are the taxes, we all agree you should increase so that we can have better health care. I think they may have had some credibility. But just to say, well, we're not going to increase our taxes. And in fact, again, I live in Scarborough. On my street, I see all these beautiful SUVs and F-150 pickup trucks. And we got our license renewal fee canceled. So the Ontario government lost a billion dollars a year. So I would say to my colleague, uh, Premier Ford, you don't need to raise uh, taxes to help the medical system. Just don't cancel the license fee renewal. That'll give you an extra $1 billion a year. And I and the people in Scarborough will continue to drive our SUVs and pickup trucks. So uh, I think it made the premiers look really bad. There is only one taxpayer. So if you want to have more money for health care, tell us how you right. will pay for it. Which of the taxes will you increase for Glenn and his family and his neighbors? Yes, certainly not a very innovative statement from the premiers. Okay, very quickly, I guess I'll be able to get one comment from each of you on the legal journey facing Patrick Brown as he appeals his disqualification as a candidate for the federal conservative leadership race. Word in the Globe and Mail this morning, the conservatives are seeking independent legal guidance on how to deal with Brown's request. And Brown's lawyer, Marie Ennan, had asked 
asked for a response by the weekend. So it seems the Conservatives are trying to figure out whether it is possible to hold an appeal, uh, which leads to this question, Charles, how unprecedented is this situation? Well, Patrick Brown's career has been unprecedented, and um, and there are obviously some bridges that he's burned in the past with some of his party members, and that's coming to haunt him now. Um, you know, the notion of paying staff to do work on a campaign is not unusual. I mean, I look at the other can- candidates, and they have political staff paid by taxpayers that are working on those campaigns. It's the disclosure of those individuals and when they're doing and how they're volunteering at, at hours. That's where Patrick... Uh, I guess failed in respect to this particular instance, but there's more to this, and I don't know the full story in the backdrop, but uh, hey, he's got a right to defend himself, and you know, he will, because he's proven himself to be a fighter, so he'll continue to fight back. Lisa, we did get some details of Patrick Brown's troubles. Longtime party activist Deborah Jodouin released a statement saying she informed the Conservative Party that Brown had encouraged her to work for him while under the auspices of her private company, and she said that he was aware a corporation was paying for her campaign work, which the Globe cites is illegal under federal election laws. So he may not have a case here. I don't think anybody knows whether or not there's a case to be made other than counsel that's giving advice, and this will get sorted out uh, by an arbitrator of law, is my guess. But I'll tell you that it's not unique. To answer the question you posed to Charles, mm-hmm. it, when I was the co-chair of LEOC, um, the last go-around, we had challenges to our decisions that ended up before an adjudicator. And I know that from experience, the Green parties had the same thing happen in their leadership race. And the NDP had it happen in the race to replace Tom O'Care. So these are high-charged, high-stakes events. And these are things that people are worth, you know, they feel is worth fighting for. And this one is going to end up going the same route, which is it'll end up in a in a court or by somebody who's going to make the decision. And we'll see how the, the chips fall. But the fact that everyone's getting a lawyer, I think, is a good thing. Mm-hmm. I think if there's a problem with justice being followed here, that it should be decided, and it should be decided um, by the the person best placed to do it, which is a judge or an arbitrator. And Glenn, can they get this all done legally by September 10th, which is the date they want to choose a new leader? Well, uh, I mean, I'm looking at a Conservative Party of Canada leadership election ballot right now, and Patrick Brown's name is on it. Um, so this is turmoil. Uh, some people may have already mailed their ballots in and, and put him as their first, second, third, or even sixth choice. Um, so I don't know what they're going to do. It certainly harms Patrick Brown, these allegations. And they're not allegations now from another party or anonymous source. They're allegations from somebody within his own leadership team, a trusted uh, friend and ally of mm-hmm. his. So it it is not good for Patrick Brown the actual deadline I think about is August the 19th, which is the last day Patrick Grant Brown, for example, could register to run for mayor of Brampton. And I have to say, to me, Brampton's a very beautiful place. Well, Patrick Brown will be on with Libby tomorrow, so we will uh, we will hear where he is at uh, personally when they have their conversation then. For now, I thank you all. That was a great uh, talk about uh, the hot topics going on across the country. Thank you all. You bet. Thanks, James. All the best. Cheers. Charles Charles Souza, former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister. Lisa Raitt, former Federal Conservative Deputy Leader and filling in for Ontario NDP Leader, former Ontario NDP Leader Howard Hampton, former Toronto City Councillor Glenn DeBearmaker. Jane for Libby. She is back tomorrow. And coming up next, expanding fourth dose COVID vaccine eligibility is about to happen. And you can thank an Ottawa family doctor for her push to allow all adults to get it. That's coming up next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby's Nimer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. 
So as early as today, we could get word that the Ontario PCs are granting fourth dose COVID vaccine access to adults 18 to 59, expanding eligibility from only those Ontario residents who are 60 and older. Some of the credit in making this happen goes to Dr. Neely Kaplan-Mirth, an Ottawa-based family physician and medical anthropologist who writes about health policy and politics. She joins us now, along with epidemiologist and professor Dr. Tim Sly at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Toronto Metropolitan University. Hello to you both. Good morning, Jay. Good afternoon. Dr. Kaplan Mirth, what are you hearing? When is this announcement coming down? So I heard yesterday that uh, it was supposed to be announced this morning at eight o'clock. And then this morning, I heard that it's supposed to be announced tomorrow. So Um, Much like everything else that's happened in our government, it's all um, guesses are kind of, we don't know when it'll be announced and what they're going to announce. Uh, I saw a leaked document that looked decent, but they could revise that, change that, or never even announce it. So in the meantime preparing to go to court if we have to. Doctor, for those who have not heard on the radio or read in the newspaper your story of trying to sign up adults under 60 to get their fourth shots, will you tell us that story, explain what's been going on? Yeah, so on June 27th, we had registered 730 people in the Ottawa area to come and get their booster. All previously considered high risk and prioritized for their third dose back in December, So these are doctors, nurses, dentists, social workers, people who work in grocery stores, people who drive buses, people who work in factories, pregnant people, people with disabilities. And the province phoned Ottawa Public and told them they were absolutely to give us the vaccine. So Public Health phoned us and said, yeah, sorry, we can't give it to you because Ontario won't let us. And um, well, what is going to happen to that vaccine? And basically, they said, well, they might give it to pharmacies, but pharmacists are also having to throw it out because they can't give it to anybody under 60 either. So essentially, the doses of vaccine go garbage instead of going to people who are asking for a boost as their protection from their last booster has waned. Right. Uh, You know, I think about myself. I had my third shot on December 19th. Well, that's coming up on seven months ago. So I am in your corner. I would like to get a fourth shot uh, under 60. So waiting for that announcement. Um, Doctor, you are planning or have been planning to go uh, and, and make an appeal to uh, an organization under the Charter of Rights and Freedom saying that this ruling by the Ontario government for people 60-plus, only 60-plusers to get it, is discriminatory. Explain uh, how yeah. that, explain that situation. Yeah, so um, so I engaged uh, with a lawyer, uh, Mark Bury, who's a lawyer in Ottawa, helped me to send a letter to the uh, Minister of Health and the Premier, um, to say, like, please just do the right thing so that we don't have to go to court. But, of course, we didn't hear back. So we have a team of three people, Mark Bory, Joanna Radboard, and Amir Adaran, who are working with me. We have 70 people who have volunteered to be plaintiffs. We've raised more than $10,000 in case there are court costs. But those lawyers are actually working. Oh, no, they're doing this because it's for the Ontario to be able to access vaccines. And uh, the only thing is that, like, we don't want to have to go to court if we don't mm-hmm. have to. It takes a lot of time, a lot of energy uh, for the lawyers, for all the people who have to give their affidavits, and also for me in, in keeping this going. I mean, really, we shouldn't have to fight. So under Section 7 and 15 of the Constitution, like, there are, there are kind of the legalities that the lawyers could speak more to, but the um, the crux of it is that people should be... Um, allowed to consent to receive the vaccine, which is safe and effective. And um, we are disproportionately disadvantaging poor people, uh, as well as women. And the reason poor people and women are are more disadvantaged here is because uh, if you look at who can't jump into a car and go and hunt for a vaccine, who can't just drive to the United States or drive around Quebec looking for a vaccine, those are people who 
don't have the money to do so um, and the privilege to do so. The people who are going to get sick are all the people who have to work in jobs that bring them face-to-face with other people. Those are a lot of menial jobs. There are a lot of jobs that don't have support like sick leave and disability benefits. And those same people who are all our essential workers, um, the bulk of the nurses at workforce out there, all those nurses who um, are getting sick with COVID and are also not allowed to get a booster and, um, and work in grocery stores and childcare providers mm-hmm. and parents, people, anybody who has children um, who have in school or in camp are being infected and reinfected two, three times. And all of all of that population uh, is desperate for a booster, and we're all under the age of 60. So um, so there's just many grounds on which to argue that we should have access to vaccine. A vaccine is otherwise being thrown out. And in answer to everybody's question, well, should we not just wait for a new vaccine in the fall? Yeah. We don't know when that vaccine will be available. Maybe it'll be available sometime in October. Um, nine, I guess you ten, you're going to have to fight for it. You're going to have to hunt for it. And those same people are, again, not going to be prioritized. Okay, so, let me let me put this uh, out to so, our listeners. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask our listeners, um, some of whom are 60 plus, some are under 60. Uh, we are speaking with a more mature audience. Are you keen to get your fourth shot uh, should eligibility widen to 59 and under? Or if you're 60 plus, have you already received your fourth shot? 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-744-740. Let's Let's go over to Dr. Tim Sly now. I haven't spoken with you in a while. How are you keeping? Very well, Jane. Good afternoon to you and to uh, Dr. Kaplan Rice, too. Uh, this is uh, ever since the beginning, way in the beginning. Remember, almost three years ago, we were we pointed out there's nothing black and white with this pandemic. Everything is shades of gray in between, which of course affects all the decisions. I think what we have here is uh, even the variation with the the deadline for starting the force. Israel, I think, it says virtually anybody in over 18. Uh, some of the provinces are at 50, uh, 50 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we have to push back a little bit and look at the real evidence here, clearly there's a priority list. Uh, I mean, you go down the priority list, the third dose is clearly where the biggest benefit comes, the biggest bang for the buck between the the basic primary two and up to three, that's where the protection lies. The fourth dose is an additional bit, but it's not that much more. But on the other hand, we've got got a situation where we have to recognize hospitalization rates today are something like three times what they were this time last year. So we don't look at incidents anymore. Incidents has gone out the window. So is uh, the positivity rates and so on. But we look at hospitalization rates because you can't fool with those. Three times what it was last year. We're entering now a new, uh, a new mem- couple of members of the, of the Omicron family who moved in there, uh, B4 and 5, and there's a couple of others on the horizon as well. Uh, masks have gone. Uh, personally, I think the mandate for that was a little too soon to drop them, uh, mm-hmm. and people are t- it's difficult to get them back now. I think if we could. so, there's a lot of reasons to say we should be boosting up what other protections we have, and so I think that uh, having said that, I think uh, yeah, it's about time to begin to think that uh, maybe we should begin to and the prospect of wasting vaccine. I mean, that is just horrendous. Yes. Uh, and, and the last little bit I'll add on to this little tirade thing is that we have uh, around the world many countries who haven't even got to the, f- oh, sorry, fully vaccinated, but the first vaccine yet. And all the, vac- all the variants are coming from these places where there's a high amount of replication. So we've got to do everything we can to get the, the rest of the world vaccinated. Our Zoomer radio listeners would like to get in on the conversation. Sita and Mississauga, go ahead. Hi, Jane. How are you? Thanks I'm fine. Um, doctors, you are doing a great job pushing the booster for all since we're heading to another wave. And a quick tip. I called shoppers last week, and they're booked until August. I phoned the small independent drugstore, and I was asked to come in the same day, which was very short notice. We couldn't make it. But the next day we went, and we're fully, we got all our booster up to date. So you've had, you've had your fourth shot, Sita. Yeah. yeah. Yes. 
Okay, well, that's good to hear. I did want to, and thank you for calling, I did want to ask Dr. Kaplan Mirth. Uh, Anecdotally, I'm hearing that people under 60, not much under 60, are able to get the shot at some drugstores. Is is that a pharmacist making a decision on their own? What's going on there? Most people are being turned away in, in pharmacies, the same um, the same for the same reason that they end up being turned away um, in found doctor's offices. Um, but if um, like I have done, I have had vaccine events when I give it to everybody who's 16 over and we have left overdoses, I refuse to throw those out. Then I put out a call and, and we let anybody come in who um, is, is, you know, under age 60 who wants it. Um, so pharmacists can make that choice to do the same, but um, but by and large, pharmacists aren't doing that, and um, people are being turned away even now back to Quebec uh, to get their vaccine. So as of about half an hour ago, uh, New Brunswick has now approved boosters for anybody 18 and over. Mm-hmm. I think British Columbia has approved it. Quebec has approved it. But again, it comes down to who can jump in a car and hunt. And right. as that caller just said, like there are many pharmacies that are booked up um, but they're not being um, uh, honest in terms, not the caller, but I mean the pharmacists and the, and the province aren't being honest in terms of, it's, it's not that there are so many people who are 60 and over who haven't yet been able to get their dose. That has been available for months and people who want it very well can get it. So it's, it's really a question of all the doses that go in the garbage because the people under the age of 60 who are begging for it aren't being allowed to have it. Let's go to Margaret in Niagara. Margaret, what's your story? Uh, Jane, I just went shopping a couple weeks ago up on Lundy's Lane here in town, and I noticed the Rex uh, drugstore had a sign of fourth uh, fourth doses, come on in. I went in, 10 minutes later, I'm out. I've got my shot. I'm 69. They They were giving it to anybody that wanted it. So no waiting, no registering, just nice and easy. Nice, nothing. I just hopped in the car and got pulled out my phone and phoned everybody I knew. And all my friends went up there and got theirs right away. So it was so easy. And that was all, just a good comment for a change. Yes, thank you. Thanks for calling, Margaret. Let's go to Donna in Welland. Donna, have you had your for- fourth shot? Hello. Hello. Go ahead, Donna. Okay, yes, I went, no, I didn't get it. I went to Shopper Drug Mart and they said they had none and they had no idea when they were going to be getting any more shots. Well, you heard Margaret there in Niagara. Maybe you should head over to her Rexall. <laughs> no, can't do that. Okay. Too far. It's too far, uh, yeah. Yeah, too far. I, I had my third in December, mm-hmm. so I'm at my seven-month mark. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to be getting some more information. We don't know exactly when, but uh, that's what we're hearing. And I suspect it will be the new health minister, Sylvia Jones, Dr. Moore making the announcement in tandem. But again, nothing official on that yet. Let's go to Michael in Toronto. Michael, go ahead. Hi there. No, I'm a stage four pancreatic cancer and I had my fourth shot in January. So we're pushing six and a half, seven months at 69. I'm just curious where we stand in all this. Oh, good question. Uh, Dr. Kaplan-Murth, this individual, what's his situation? What should he do? So um, if they word their announcement appropriately, they'll say that anybody whose last dose was five months ago should be eligible for a booster, which should therefore include anybody who needs a fifth dose because they were immunocompromised and had a fourth dose more than five months ago. So that's certainly what I hope will happen. But again, like all bets are off. We, we don't know what the province will say. Okay. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for calling. Uh, Dr. Sly, I'd like to ask you uh, from an epidemiological perspective, uh, you know, around the scientific uncertainty of getting a fourth shot now versus waiting until the fall for the new Omicron tailored uh, booster vaccine. Uh, are there any concerns that if you get it now, you might have to wait a little longer in the fall? Well, it's a bit more like the stock market, actually, Jane. You never quite know what's over the horizon that you can't use, see yet. 
I mean, we're building up now the BA4 and BA5 uh, variant, but who knows, in another three months, we could see a totally different variant that comes along. And don't forget, so far, really, if you stand back and look at it, all the variants we've had, Alpha, Gamma, Delta, and the Omicrons, have all been reasonably the same degree of pathogenicity, in other words, disease-producing. None of them have been uh, an increased amount of uh, illness there. Now, we could easily see something like SARS-1, which is another the coronavirus appear, and that's going to be 10 to 11 times the case fatality rate. Or even the MERS coronavirus, so that's about 30 times the risk of dying if you're a case. And that, that could be another variant of this thing around the horizon. This is why it's so important to vaccinate the rest of the world as well. So we know, don't quite know what's going on the horizon. Mm-hmm. Some people will say, uh, wait until you get your booster just before the wave, you know, because it's going to do most, of, most effectiveness. But we never quite know when that next wave is going to be. And if I was looking at the figures today in the wastewater and the hospitalization rates, uh, they are shooting up. In fact, the GTA rate for the wastewater virus the signal is the highest. It's a very, very high in the province. So it is a lot of it spreading around right now. And we will be talking more about the seventh wave after the break. In the meantime, uh, Dr. Sly, Dr. Kaplan Murth, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. Have a good afternoon. Pleasure, Jane. Thank you. Bye. Epidemiologist Dr. Tim Sly, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Toronto Metropolitan University, and Dr. Neely Kaplan-Murth, an Ottawa-based family physician and medical anthropologist. Jane for Libby, and still to come, from fourth-shot boosters to the seventh wave of COVID. They are going hand-in-hand. That is coming up next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. We here in Ontario learned last week that we're in a seventh wave of COVID-19. What does this mean and how do we protect ourselves when hardly anyone is wearing a mask and pretty well all the other protocols have been lifted? Joining us to answer these questions, Dr. Karen Bourne, Assistant Scientific Director of the Ontario COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. Dr. Bourne, thanks for joining Fight Back. Hi, how are you? Well, I'm well, uh, and, you know, we're all getting good at counting the waves. Hard to believe we're up to number seven now, almost two and a half years into this pandemic. What is the seventh wave? What does it look like? Uh, and is it being driven by the BA5? Uh, well, thanks for all these questions, Libby. It is hard to believe that we are in the seventh wave of COVID-19 and even hard to, harder to believe that it's in the summer months uh, where, you know, many people were very hopeful that the warm weather would mean uh, that we wouldn't see another wave so soon after uh, the last, uh, the sixth wave of Omicron, which happened around February and March. Uh, it is being driven by uh, the BA5 variant of uh, Omicron. It is more infectious than um, prior variants of COVID-19. Uh, Dr. Bourne, usually Libby is here. It's Jane today. Oh, I'm so sorry, No, Jane. that's okay. That's all right. My apologies. <laughs> Just so we know who we're, who we're, we're, we're both speaking with. Yes. Um, now, in terms of this BA5, uh, I do have uh, people that I know uh, who have recently had COVID and are wondering because their case was quite severe, not hospitalization severe, but they were pretty well knocked out by it after having a third shot early in the year. Would that be the BA5? Is it more severe? Uh, what are you thinking about that? So, uh there are scientists around the world who are studying BA5, and it's only, uh, you know, it was only identified, uh, I was first identified in South Africa, only identified a couple of months ago, and I would say scientists are learning about BA5 every day. Uh, what we've seen from other jurisdictions, places like South Africa, uh, Portugal, uh, where BA5 is dominant, uh, is that it, it is um, more infectious so, uh, and it does evade uh, immunity. So even if you've had a recent COVID-19 infection, you can still get BA5. But um, in other jurisdictions, they haven't seen the same sharp rise in hospitalization and severe illness. 
especially among vaccinated individuals, uh, as they did with, you know, the earlier uh, waves of um, of COVID-19. So what are you and your colleagues on the science advisory table suggesting to us here in Ontario? I mean, every time I go to Loblaws, fewer and fewer people are wearing their masks. Is this is this advised that in congregate settings we do mask up? Uh yeah, so I mean, it's been two years since the pandemic, over two years since the pandemic has started. And certainly there are, you know, uh, as opposed to across the board measures, you know, those closures, uh, people being advised to stay at home, uh, we're in a different time. And we're in a different time for a number of different reasons. One is that we have excellent uh, vaccines that do a really good job of protecting people and reducing uh, severe illness and hospitalizations. And we also have very high uptake of these vaccines among the population. Uh, the challenge is, is that the definition of what being fully vaccinated means keeps changing. So initially it was two doses of the vaccine. Now it's three doses. So if uh, you or a loved one hasn't yet had uh, a booster dose, if you're eligible, then a third dose, then you should have that. And in fact, uh, there's been a lot of discussion now about fourth doses, which are available in Ontario currently for people who are 60 plus or immune compromised. So if you think that you or a loved one may be eligible for a fourth dose, that's something to talk to uh, your doctor or a pharmacist about. Um, and in terms of masks, we also know, you know, in the beginning of the pandemic, people were sewing masks out of cloth. Uh, we know now that there are good quality, high quality masks like an N95 or medical surgical mask that even if people around you, particularly if you're wearing an N95, even if people around you are not masking, the, that mask can still protect you mm-hmm. as an individual. Um, so those are some things that we can do uh, to keep safe uh, at this time. And, and you know, at a different time, the seventh wave, we, we, we have learned uh, b- better how to live uh, with, with this virus. True. Uh, and we and we all act accordingly. We don't get as close to each other in one-on-one yes. conversations. We kind of go around each other in the hallways. I mean, everybody's body language has changed, definitely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and for those of us who are under 60, and we are waiting uh, on this widened eligibility for people under 60 to be announced, uh, would you consider us still fully vaccinated, uh, fully vaccinated with a third shot if we got the third shot back in December? So that's a great question. I think that the language of fully vaccinated is something that we need to do away with. And it's more up to date on your vaccinations because really um, the guard post keeps changing. And it's hard for me to speak to what, you know, each individual situation, because we've also seen uh, immunity comes both from the COVID-19 vaccines, but also from prior infections. And there have been huge waves, particularly with Omicron, of infections in Ontario and having a prior infection does give some immunity. The challenge is with BA5 is that a recent infection and even vaccination doesn't mean that people are not getting infected with COVID-19. But if you have um, had a recent infection um, and, and importantly, if you've been uh, vaccinated, uh, much less likely to have a uh, severe illness or need to be hospitalized. Dr. Bourne, our time is up, but I definitely want you to come back. Uh, will you join us again? Anytime. Thank you so much, Jane. Nice Thank you. To you. Dr. Karen Bourne is Assistant Scientific Director of the Ontario COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. Libby is back tomorrow. The number ones at one are next after Steve Key's news. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.